Welcome to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm John McLean, and I can be reached at McLean underscore on underscore NFL, but I no longer can be reached at john.mclean at cron.com. I'm Greg Rajan. I can be reached at Greg Rajan, R-A-J-A-N on Twitter. And Greg can be reached at Chronicle. Greg, this is my last day at the Chronicle. It's our last podcast, unless you call me for a guest appearance. It's an honor to be on with you. And I'd like to point out all the things you've done to help me through the years. And I've had a blast being on with you guys, and I really appreciate it. John, you're going to make me emotional just a couple minutes into this thing, but uh, the pleasure has been all mine. I cannot thank you enough for all you've done for me since I came to the Chronicle from Corpus Christi nearly eight years ago. It's been a it's been a blast. We've got to work on a lot of projects together, a lot of different things, and um, yeah, I'm I'm going to miss you, no doubt. You're still going to be around, but Chronicle will not be the same without you. To use a cliche that we use about. Uh, athletes you are the face of the franchise so it'll it'll never be the same at 4747 southwest freeway but uh we'll celebrate the good times here during this kind of i don't want to call it a farewell podcast it's just your last podcast with me as a chronicle staffer but hopefully we'll we'll have future chats in, in this forum well thank you very much i've left the chronicle in good hands with a lot of people including brooks cabina who just completed his first season covering the Texans, and he'll have many, many more. Well, I, I had to get, get on Brooks's case because he he called you uh, his sports hero. I told him I thought I was his sports hero, but I told him in this case it was okay that you outranked <laughs> me. <laughs> let's <laughs> l- let's get started with this. I, we're not going to talk about Nick Casario, Deshaun Watson, Davis Mills, or any of, this, uh, any of these other topics that we've been talking about for the last 14 months. Let's, let's talk about John McClain. You came to the Chronicle, for, for, it's been 47 years. You're mostly known for your coverage of the NFL, but I'm not sure a lot of people realize you were hired at the Chronicle to cover hockey, as in the Houston Arrows of the World Hockey Association with Gordy Howe and his sons, Mark and Marty. You were coming from the Waco Tribune Herald. I'm assuming you never saw hockey in Waco. What was that like for you coming to the Chronicle to cover a relatively foreign sport in those days for you? Former Chronicle sports editor, Tony Peterson, who was also managing editor and editor, he and I became friends in 1971, and we were roommates in 73 and 2 in Waco before he left the Waco Tribune Arrow to come to the Chronicle to cover the original Arrows. And he didn't know squat about hockey either, but like me, he was thrown to the wolves and had to learn on the fly. And I think it was Dale Robertson who first said learning hockey from Gordy Howe is like learning uh, the Bible from Jesus. And that's the way I felt. When I got to the Chronicle, Greg, I had been on one plane flying from Waco to Odessa on a puddle hopper for a junior, con- for a junior college for a junior college journalism conference. And when I came to the Chronicle, uh, we didn't have the Internet, of course. So before I left Waco, I was making 150 a week. They offered me 175 a week. Chronicles paid me 210 I went to the Waco Public Library and read everything I could about Gordy Howe, Mr. Hockey, who had come out of retirement from the Detroit Red Wings to play with his sons. And uh, they had won two championships, and I got there, and they lost in the championships to uh, the Winnipeg Jets 
in the finals, and it was a great experience. But, man, when I first started watching it and they whipped up and down the ice, I'm like, oh, my God. And their PR guy, the late Rich Berg, he'd been a sports writer for the Houston Post, he stood behind me and tried to explain everything that was happening. And I was taking notes. Back then, we had to go to the, back to the Chronicle downtown, writing stories. So I wrote a story about the game. And when I finished pasting it together, there were no computers then. We're still using typewriters. And I pasted like seven pages together. And I went over and turned it into the night editor, Fred Fowler, Big Fred, one of the greatest characters I've ever known. Also a tremendous newsman. So I gave it to him, and he edits it down, said, we only got space for eight inches. Don't ever write this long again. And so he edited my probably like 40-inch story down to eight inches, and I knew to pay attention after that. And then we take off and go on the road, go across Canada. We go across the United States. And I'm like, my God, I couldn't believe all these cities and the weather and the TV stations and going to uh, the Coliseum, La Colisee in uh, Quebec City, and uh, it was it was great. They gave me a pair of skates and said, learn to skate. And when I finally learned to stop without going into the boards, they folded. And a lot of their players went on to the NHL, and I was sure they stayed afloat for one more six-months period the arrows would have been part of the merger of the World Hockey Association and the National Hockey League. The arrows outdrew the Rockets. They sold out the Summit, which is now Lakewood Church, and uh, it was a blast covering them, getting to know Canadian players, learning about Canada. I was so stupid, Greg. I didn't know you could sign for room service. I thought you had to pay cash. I'd get a hamburger fries and a Coke for about five bucks and $20. The guy that brought the tray, he'd look at me awkwardly and I'd say, thank you. And then one day I told him I was running out of money on a team bus. And I'll never forget Terry Ruskowski said, what'd you just say? I said, I'm running out of money because I'm eating room service every night. And he said, why are you running out of money? And I told him, and they're like, oh, my God, you're such a hayseed. Where'd you say you were from? I said, Waco. He said, that says it all. When Gordie Howe passed away in uh, 2016, you had a column about your memories of Gordie Howe. And there was a great story about a flight that you guys were on. I think it was to Winnipeg. When you were flying, you know, you would watch Gordie Howe for his reactions. And then you would know, like, if everything was going OK. Could you share that story again, please? I was scared about turbulence. And most people were. And the team captain, Tim Taylor, we flew commercial. Jerry Trupiano, the voice of the Arrows, the godfather of sports talk in Houston for KTRH radio. And he would, he was, as the traveling secretary, would give us our seats. And I'll never forget one time being next to the team captain, Ted Taylor, who was in his mid-30s. And we had some turbulence and I was scared to death. And Ted said, the only people who worry about going down the plane or people that got money in the bank and kids. And I said, well, I don't have kids and I don't have any money in the bank. He said, well, I do. And he was scared, but I always would look back at Gordy Howe. And Gordy was always working crossword puzzles, wearing these little granny glasses. 
And if you looked at him, you're like, my God, this is Mr. Hockey. This is Mr. Elbows riding back there and coach with everybody else. But I would look at Gordy, and no matter how bad the turbulence was, I'd look at him, and he'd still be doing his crossword puzzles, or he'd put it down in his lap if it was too bad to do. And if I figured, if Gordy Howe's not worried about this turbulence, I'm not going to be either. Then on that one flight, it was wor- still to this day, Greg, is the worst turbulence I've ever been in. And I was like a couple of players, I won't mention their names, other than one was Terry Raskowski, were basically screaming. And so I looked back from my seat in the aisle, two rows back to Gordy's seat in the aisle, figuring that he'd be relaxed. And instead, he was gripping the armrest so hard, I thought they were going to break. And then I saw him reach up and cross himself and, and lean back and close his eyes and grit his teeth. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to crash. But we didn't, and when we landed, we walked down the runway out onto the tarmac, and Terry Ruskowski, who was one of their most popular players, walked down the ramp, fell to the ground, and kissed the ground. Somebody said, what are you doing? He said, I'm kissing Mother Earth, thanking God that we are still here. That's great. Um, obviously, you, obviously, after you covered the Arrows, you transitioned to covering the Oilers of the NFL right, for the, uh, right there for the Love You Blue era. We could talk for hours about your years covering the NFL, but what are some of the memories here covering the NFL at the Chronicle that really stand out for you, John? Uh, first time I went to an Oilers training camp was 77. The, the regular beat writer, Hal Lundgren, I think the first week at camp, he went to a church camp with his family. And back then, Greg, there were six preseason games, ex- exhibitions as they called them, and training camp was two months long and it was always on the road and that year they went to Nacogdoches Stephen F. Austin it was a terrible place back then as all the training camp sites were and it was hot 36 players had to spend at least one night in the hospital to get IVs because of the heat and the humidity it didn't it didn't escape all those tall pine trees in the piney woods and so it was a terrible camp for the players and the first practice I'll never forget, I went into this room off of Bum Phillips's suite. I say a suite. It was a dump. And and there was a room, kind of like an executive boardroom, with a bunch of beat-up tables pushed together and a bunch of bad chairs around it. So I go in there, and I see Dale Robertson and other members of the media sit at the opposite end of where Bum's going to be. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down here by Bum. I'm going to get to ask him more questions. So Bum was sitting on the end. I sit next to him. He reaches down, and he does something, and I don't know what he's doing. And then when he finishes, he backs his chair up and puts his dirty, stinky feet on the table right where I am. And I hold my breath, and I look back at Dale Robertson and everybody, and they're just laughing their butts off. And never again did I sit next to Bob Phillips. I was a seasoned veteran in one day. In those times, I wouldn't take it. They made me get up and sing my alma mater, the good old Baylor Lion. I wouldn't do it. And so they started bombarding me with food. And this was in the cafeteria. And I'll never forget, and I've talked to these guys through the decades about it, the late Ted Thompson, one of the all-time great general managers for the Packers, Mike Reinfeldt, the free safety 
who's been general manager in uh, multiple other positions in the NFL, I remember them throwing, standing up and pelting me with rolls. And, uh, but I refused to sing the good old Baylor line. So those were the kind of times you had at training camp. And I'll never forget this, too. In 1977, the Chronicle had a special Monday sports section, which was called uh, the Monday Special. And we would have on the cover, a full cover, a famous person. And Hal Lundgren, the main uh, Oilers guy, he'd had Bud Adams, Lamar Hunt. So I'm sitting in the office one night, and I told the guys in the office, Fred Fowler, Dan Schultz, I said, I'm going to write for the sports special, and I'm, I'm going to call Joe DiMaggio. And they started laughing, yeah, right. So I picked up the phone, called information San Francisco and asked for the restaurant. It's about eight o'clock on a Sunday night. Guy goes, DiMaggio's. And I said, Joe DiMaggio, please. He said, speaking. I said, uh, 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 Joe DiMaggio, please speaking. Uh, Mr. DiMaggio, my, my, my name is John McLean and I'm with the Houston Chronicle. And all the guys in the office thought I was making it up. They were laughing, telling me, Oh, you're doing a great job. And I told him we did a Monday sports section. I'd like to come to San Francisco and interview him. He said, when? And I said, well, whatever is your convenience. He said, well, I have a really big, busy schedule around the country. That's the epitome of his Mr. Coffee commercial. So I threw a date out there, and he said, let me look at my calendar. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to be in New York. So I threw it to a couple more. He looked at his calendar, and I realized he wasn't going to do it. He was just being polite. And so I thanked him very much for the time. I hung up. And the guys in the office, Bill Stickney and Jerry Wizzy and Joe McLaughlin and Charles Carter and Dan Schultz and Fred Fowler never believed that I talked to Joe DiMaggio. But they did believe when I went to Chicago and spent a day with George Alice and another day with Bill Vec, the owner of the White Sox, in the bard room at Comiskey Park and him regaling me stories about when he was a kid and his dad owned the Cubs, and he's telling me stories about Al Capone and John Dillinger, and then the next day I'm with Papa Bear in his office, and he's telling me about the formation of the NFL in 1921. Of course, he was there and helped found it and telling me about players through the decades. Those those kind of stories, you know, they're unbelievable. I spent a night in 1990. Six was Sammy Baugh at his ranch in Rotan. Cowboy Bill Lamza, president of Cowboys Fan Club, knew him, played dominoes with him. And he had told me, if you can play dominoes, Sammy will take anybody in. He doesn't care who they are. He loves dominoes. So I got Cowboy to call him, set up a thing. We flew to Lubbock, drove to the his ranch at the Twin Mountains outside Roshan in West Texas and spent a night with him. I recorded like seven hours of stories about Sammy Ball talking about playing at TCU, playing with the Redskins and playing with the uh, in the minors with the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team with the Gas House gang. He just regaled us with stories. And I wrote four open pages that went in a chronicle you know, that Monday. And I took some pictures. And one of them, I asked him, I said, of all the awards you won, what was the best? At this time, he was 85. He was the last surviving member 
of the original class of the Pro Football of Fame in 1963. So he goes over to his trophy case, and I figure he's got all these big ones. He reaches way in the back, and he pulls this card out, and he blows the dust off of it. He showed it to me. It was his only hole-in-one because he drove to Sweetwater almost every day to play golf. And you talk about an experience. And as in the Chronicle was great because he cussed like crazy. Every other word was some bitch this, some bitch that. And the Chronicle approved me quoting him exactly. And I don't think that's ever been done until uh, the uh, Deshaun Watson lawsuits. We left, and and as we were getting in the car, we're standing on his porch, and I said, how come you won't ever come back to Canton and be honored? Because he would never go anywhere he couldn't be back in his bed. And he told me, I like to sleep in my bed at night. I don't want to sleep in a hotel. And the Pro Football of Fame even offered to put his bed on a train and all it to Canton, but he wouldn't do it. And then the last thing I asked him is he handed him Cowboy Bill Lambs and I a bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the road. I said, why do you live out here? Why don't you live in town? And he said, I have to change one word. He said, I like to live right here because anytime I want to come out on my porch and take a, a leak, he said, I can do it right here. He said, I got to take a leak right now. And I said, you know what? I do too. So Sammy Barr and I stood on his porch and took a leak uh, off it together. And <laughs> that was, you talk about memories of the Chronicles so much for allowing me to do things like that, to go places like that and spend the money and then write really long, in-depth stories. And the Chronicle told me when that story came out, that was the only time in their history They'd ever run out of papers because everybody wanted to read about Sammy Ball. Those stories are something. John, obviously this modern era of sports journalism, access is so limited to players and coaches and executives. You started covering the NFL during a much different time. How, how was it to develop those relationships with the people you covered back then? It was interesting because today we haven't even been in a locker room the last two years because of COVID-19. They're going to open it back up uh, next season. And they have time limits. Some players come in, some don't. The PR people go get them and bring them in if we want to interview them. But there are players who will stay at their lockers like John Weeks, the senior member of the Texans, fellow Baylor Bear. I used to like to go to his locker, talk Baylor football. I got to know J.J. Uh, Watt that way. Uh, I, I got to know Andre Johnson, uh, Eric Winston, Indy Kalu, but never like it used to be with the Oilers. We could go into their practice facility while they're in team meetings and go into the to the locker room and sit on the benches in front of their lockers, and, like read the Chronicle and the Post till till they came in there. So we could interview them as long as they weren't on the practice field uh, in the weight room or getting treatment, and, of course, in the bathroom. And so uh, you could talk to guys about their families, about where they went to school, about their friends or teammates, and you could get to know them. And uh, I have relationships with a lot of Oilers. I didn't have when they played, but I've had since they retired. And, uh, and I don't know that I'll have any with members of the Texans for just that reason. I just had breakfast with Dan Pastorini recently and and uh 
I love hearing those hotels. I I was out at Bruce Matthews' house recently, did an event with Bruce. And uh, some of those guys I'll talk to on the phone and, and just BS and catch up. And, and I wouldn't I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything. Back then, you could walk in Bum Phillips's office or any of the other coaches and sit down and watch tape with them, film with them. Uh, Mike Holovac, who went on to be GM, was personnel director under general manager Lad Herzing, and I could go in Mike's office, and he'd show me tape of college players, NFL players. He helped me more than anybody is when it comes to learning football because you could do that. The New Year's Eve massacre, December 31st, 1980. I got a tip from the late Pat Pepler, assistant general manager, said, hey, buddy, you better get up here. I think Bum's being fired. So I jumped up. I didn't brush my teeth or anything. I just took off. Went there, went in, went up, was going to go in Bum's office. Today, if you tried that, you'd get tasered. And uh, and he'd just been fired, and I went in his office with him and talked to him about it. I cherished those moments, and I don't want to sound like an old dinosaur or an old fogey, but the guys today don't know what it's like. I remember one time going into the dressing room while the players were in their meetings, and I see a cornerback, Richard Johnson, sitting in front of his locker. I said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in the meetings. He said, Satan kicked me out for eating sunflower seeds. That would have been Nick Saban. That would have been 1988, his first year as the Oilers defensive backs coach. Players didn't want to talk to us. They'd tell us. They could go to the shower. They could leave. They could, you know, just tell us, hey, I'm busy. And uh, those those were great times, Greg. And back then, though, they would have the Chronicle and the post-sports sections right there every day. And when you wrote negative stuff, you heard about it. And we heard about it a lot and always tried to handle it professionally. And if, and if I was wrong, I'd tell them I was wrong or if I was shouldn't have blamed them for something. I'd try to make it up to them, but those were great times with the Oilers back there from from the late 70s through their last season in 1996 when they moved to Nashville. Those last two seasons were not good because they were terrible because they were in the process of leaving. John, when you look at sports media these days, obviously since you started, technology has changed so much. But what are some of the other noticeable changes that you've you've seen in the way sports media has evolved, you know, in, in these past four or five decades? If you're a reporter, it used to be write it or read it. If you didn't write it when you found it out, if you wait around, somebody else is going to write it and you're going to get beat and you'd have to read it. Today, it's tweet it or read it. You know, it's a 24-7 process of covering a team or covering a league. And one of the things I don't like about that. I used to play golf a lot. Had a blast playing golf, but I gave up golf when the internet came out because I have to have my phone on all the time. And guys playing with you don't want to hear your phone going off or you constantly uh, going off to the side to return calls or texts. And so finally I just said, you know what, this isn't any fun for me or them. So I put my sticks in a attic. Now I can't play because I've had a shoulder replacement and I have a slightly torn rotator cuff in the other one, but I love golf, and I used to have so much fun playing on Tuesdays, the Oilers' day off and the Texans' day off with John Granato, who I used to be on Sports Radio 610 with till he left and went to other stations. And we had a blast playing courses all over the uh, 
city. And so it's changed that way, Greg, where you have to be on call all the time. You know, if you you got to put up a blog at 6 a.m., you got to find somebody like you to wake you up and say, hey, can you please post this for me? And and uh, and one of the things is today there's a lot of people in journalism who don't have journalism backgrounds, but they've got an opinion. And there's a lot. There's no accountability in journalism, and there's a lot of people who are wrong a lot. And I've been wrong. Uh, Brett Coomer, our extraordinary photographer, texted me uh, on, let's see, Thursday morning, and he said, "Here's a picture of you eating a newspaper." And I said, "So what?" And he that was back in 2014 when the Texans needed a quarterback desperately, and I said. If the Texans don't draft a quarterback, I'll eat the sports section. And they used the first overall pick of Jadeveon Clowney. And uh, I was at the draft in New York. And when I came back, I went to NRG Stadium where the Texans were having draft headquarters. And Brett was there. And they had a buffet lined out. And uh, they had a buffet lined up. And uh, so Brett and I sat down at a table. And he brought a paper. And I tore strips of the sports section because we figured it'd go down better. And so I wadded up those strips of the sports section section in different foods and ate them one at a time with Brett taking pictures of it. And so, yes, I've been wrong before, and that's the one that got the most attention. And the next one, Greg, I wrote, Bet the House, the NFL will expand to L.A., not Houston. That was a time when the NFL had given L.A. exclusive negotiating rights, and Paul Dagleboo sent his right-hand man, Roger Goodell, to be the point man in L.A., and Raj was hanging out with Tom Cruise and all these famous uh, people in Hollywood who were backing the the expansion franchise, and all we had was Bob McNair. Bob McNair kept telling me, we're going to get it. I'm telling you, we're going to get it. I got spies out there. They don't have a, a, they don't have one ownership group. They don't have one stadium plan. They don't have financing, and we have all that. I'm telling you, we're going to get it. And I didn't believe Bob McNair until they got it in 1999 at a league meeting in Atlanta. John, obviously, you started as a print guy, but you've morphed into a radio staple. I could find you on the NFL, on various NFL network programs as a talking head. You're, you've been in movies. How did, how did that process of your career evolve? In 1976, Jerry Trupiano was, was the sports director at KTRH and the voice of the arrows. So my first road trip, we were in Quebec city and at the old La Colisee. And at that time, Quebec was trying to secede from Canada. And uh, most of the people spoke French. And it was an unbelievable experience for a, for a hayseed from Waco to be there. But the building was an old barn. You know, they ended up moving to Denver. and But at the time, it was my first trip, and it was fun. And one of the things I noticed, every exit in the two-level building had a woman standing in front of it uh, to direct people to their seats and answer questions. And they had, they were wearing really tight red sweaters, tight red skirts, and Jackie Kennedy pillbox hats. 
and they stood with their arms behind their back at attention if somebody had a question. And so Jerry Trupiano asked me if I'd like to go on radio with him between periods. And I said, I've never been on radio. He said, well, it won't be hard. I'll just ask you some questions. I said, well, don't ask me anything about hockey. He said, why not? I said, well, I don't know anything about hockey. He said, well, how'd you get this job? I said, it's a long story. He said, okay, I'll keep it simple. So I'm looking around with Coliseum, and it's loud, and it's hard to hear because they put the media right in the middle of the stands, like between the first and second levels. So I see him push a mic over to me, and I'm looking around. He's wearing his headsets, got his mic, and I'm waiting for headsets. And I hear him say, what do you think about your first trip to La Colise? And I said, wow, I said, I can't believe all the women got such big uh, breasts. I didn't use breasts, but that's, that's what I said. And I hear him go, you can take the boy out of Waco, but you can't take Waco out of the boy. Now, we're going to go to a break, try to get to the bottom of this, and we'll be back if the FCC allows us. And he said, what in the world are you doing? You can't talk like that on the radio. I said, I know. I didn't know I was on. He said, well, what do you think I was doing? Asking you a question into the mic I just gave you. I said, well, I was waiting for my headphones. He said, I wear headphones to communicate with the producer back at KTRH. And I apologized. And he said, look, if we go back and I bring you back on, do you think you can do an interview without using words like that? And I said, well, of course I can't. So the FCC let us come back on, and I thought it'd be my only appearance on the radio, but fortunately it was not. Trupiano, I went on with him a lot in road games. I went on with him a lot in his talk shows, and in 1985 he hired me for a regular weekly gig that I've been doing ever since, and I stayed at KTRH from 85 through, I think it was about 99. KILT tried to hire me twice. And I went to Bob McNair, who, and I'll say this, Bob McNair is as fine a man as I've ever known. I had so much respect for him and everything he did to bring a team here that was not. One other person, Greg, that was interested in doing what Bob did, trying to get an expansion franchise for Houston. So I went to Bob and I said, look, I know you got Jamie Roots out there talking to all the stations about being a flagship, but I need to ask you something. He said, what? I said, I've been at KTRH for 17 years, and KILT is trying to hire me. And I know you can't tell me for sure you're going to KILT, but if you think I should, I'll do it. And he said, well, let me let me check, and I'll get back to you tomorrow. So he called me the next day, and he said, if I were you, I think I'd take that new offer. So I did. 610's been the flagship all along, and I've been on there since 19. 19- 99, and I've worked with so many different hosts through the decades, had so many different general managers. I've had 10 sports editors in the Chronicle, including the current ex- executive sports editor, Reed Lamance, who's been incredible to me. A lot of the guys around the country started getting offers to be on the radio. This was, this was, uh, this would have been in the early 80s. And their sports editors said no. We don't want you giving your knowledge to our rivals. But the Chronicle realized, the editor, Tony Peterson, that you could promote the Chronicle and you could promote the writers. And that's one of the things I've always done. I talk up our, our writers, our editors, our stories, our columnists. And now I've, I've been fortunate. I do weekly shows in Nashville, 
Knoxville, Las Vegas, San Antonio, Waco. At one point, I did St. Louis for five years, Corpus Christi, Austin for like 10 years. And they always promote the Chronicle and, and now TexasSportsNation.com. And I've always done those because I think it's a great way to promote my Twitter and also to promote the Chronicle and our and our people. So I was blessed that they let me do it. And uh, I've had so much fun doing it. And I'm going to keep doing all my radio, even though I won't be working for the Chronicle anymore. And as far as movies, Greg, I, as you know, I'm a diehard movie fan. I have been it forever. People ask me sometimes, if you weren't a sports writer, what would you be? And I said, I think I would have tried to be a movie producer because they put together everything. And I've always been fascinated by the process. But in uh, 2000, some friends of mine from Baylor, Alan Hulk, a good friend of mine, said, John Lee Hancock, who I knew was a Baylor grad, whose brother Kevin Hancock played football at Baylor and in the NFL. His dad, Big John Hancock, was a Baylor football legend. He is directing his first movie. He was a screenwriter outside Austin, and some of us are going to go. You want to go? And I said, yeah. So we went over there, had a blast hanging out on the set of The Rookie, as starring Dennis Quaid. I was fascinated by the process. And so I went back two or three times and hung out with them. And there was these two young producers who this was their second movie. One of them, Mark Chiardi, had actually played baseball in the minor leagues with Jim Morris, who Dennis Quaid played. The oldest rookie was a story in Sports Illustrated. It came from. So John Lee Hancock asked me, he said, we're going to the Rangers ballpark. And we're going to shoot the scene where, where Jim Morris comes on relief and uh, against the Rays. You want to, you want to be an extra. And I said, well, what would an extra be? He said, well, you'll be in a press box. And I said, well, why would you have extras in a press box? Why don't you let me get some real media people? And they'll all write and broadcast about it, help you promote your uh, movie. He said, okay, that'll be good. I said, how many do I need? He said, talk to the, talk to the head of the extra. So I went. and He said about thirty. So I got people from the Metroplex. I got people from Houston, like Richard Justice, to get to go up there. And uh, and what was funny, those two young producers, Mark Charty and Gordon Gray, didn't give me the time of day when I was on the set in Austin. All they knew is I was some friend of John Lee Hancock's. So the day that we got there to shoot on the Sunday, there was a story on the front of the Morning News sports section and the front of the Star-Telegram sports section, one by Kevin Sherrington, the other one by Randy Galloway, talking about they were going to make their movie debut thanks to their good friend John McClain, who had invited them to come shoot on the set of The Rookie. Well, when I got there that day at the Rangers ballpark, the two producers had read that, and they're like, hey, John, how are you? Come over here and sit with us under the tent. They couldn't have been nicer than all my other movies that I did. They were the producers, not all of them, but a couple of them weren't the last one that I did, Spring Breakers with James Franco and Selena Gomez. That was done because I had met a casting director in Nashville who was a big Titans fan. So it's always about who you know. And Mark Chiardi, last time I talked to him, he called me and said, you know, if you'd lose a little weight, I could get you in more movies. So obviously I haven't done a movie since uh, in 2008. John, let's uh, wrap things up here pretty quick. Uh, I know you're busy today. Wanted to ask you, when the NFL season starts this fall, 
and you're not in a press box, what's that going to feel like? Well, you know, Greg, I might be in a press box. You never know what's going to happen. And uh, the Texans uh, PR guy, Omar Masoub, who's outstanding, has told me that I'll always have a place over there if I want to come to practice or I want to come to the game and uh, sit in the press box or come watch practice. And I probably will. And I never know what's going to pop up down the line. One of the things I'm interested in, and the reason I'm leaving the Chronicles, I just got kind of tired of going over to the Texans every day. I've been doing that beat now since since 77. I love writing columns. You know, Brooks Cabina did a tremendous job covering the beat this year. When we interviewed him in, in July, I told him there was a good chance I was going to retire and he's going to take my place. And I'm eager to see now who, who else takes my place that Reed Lamance hires. But uh, I'm, I'm keeping the options open not to be a beat guy anymore, and I don't know what's out there and do more talk shows. I love doing talk shows because talking about sports, I've always thought was like stealing. First time I walked in on KTRH and I'd been paid, I felt like I should have been pressed to be able to talk about sports for money. And I still feel that way. It's a whole lot harder sitting down at the computer writing a story than it is to turn on the mic and start talking about sports. And so... Uh, if the Texans play their first game on the road, I'm sure I will not be there. But if they play the first one uh, at home, I might. And I can tell you this, Greg, when they play Deshaun Watson, if he's not suspended, I will be there for that. And uh, I'm hoping the NFL schedules the Browns to come here in December when his suspension, if he gets one, will be sure and be over because it wouldn't do him any good schedule him in September. And then here comes Roger Goodell giving him a six-game suspension. And I want to say this, Greg, thanks very much for being on all these podcasts with me. Thanks to Scott Kingsley. He does such a great job. I'm going to miss you guys. If you ever need me as a guest, just let me know. I'll be out there. still be doing a lot of broadcasts. I'm yours whenever you guys need me. We will take you up on that for sure. And, you know, this is a very, it's a very somber week because obviously you're retiring from the Chronicle today. Yesterday, on Wednesday, the fictional John McClain, Bruce Willis, announced that he was stepping away from acting because of an illness he's uh, developed. So I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to put in a special request just for this podcast. If you could close us out with John McClain's signature phrase, and I'm not talking about pathetic. <laughs> John McClain. yippee ki mother. I'm John McClain, and you can reach me at McClain underscore on underscore NFL. I'm Greg Rajan. You can reach, reach me at Greg Rajan, R-A-J-A-N, on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Greg, thank you very much for doing this. And thanks for everybody uh, throughout the decades who, is, who have uh, supported me, followed me, uh, communicated with me. It's been real. And as George Clooney would always say at the end of the Ocean movies, I'll see you when I see you.